Greetings, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of wherepeteris.com, and this is the conclusion of our interview with the Mexican Catholic scholar Rodrigo Guerra. As always, we would like to thank our Patreon sponsors, especially Lisa and Christopher. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you feel that you've gotten something out of our articles or podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to pay and support content creators for their work. In return, your support will give you access to exclusive and behind-the-scenes content, as well as access to our contributors and other special offers in the future. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you for your generosity. We can't do it without you. And now, for the third and final part of our discussion with Rodrigo Guerra. have any comments for us you're clearly aware of what's what's going on in the US church and this english speaking world if you have any advice where we might want to focus our energy and our thoughts my my only idea is i i had a meeting with the presidency of the american bishops 4 months ago in florida in a beautiful place a kind of house for spiritual exercises. And uh, at the end of the meeting, I gave a, a small lecture about the political situation of Latin America and the situation of the church in Latin America. And at the end, there was a very similar question. And I tried to answer in this way. We have to be closer, the Latin American and the North American church. First, because geopolitical reasons, because we are in the same region. We cannot be away from each other. Second, because John Paul II invited us in Ecclesia in America to understand us as one church. We are the church of the Americas. One single church is lived in different contexts through our beautiful continent called America. So this is the second reason. It's a Pope, a Pope who is a saint, who called us to create all the experiences of unity that we can develop. Uh, and, and we have been a little bit uh, disobedient because the, the church in the States, in many occasions, walks in a very different path from the church in the Latin America and vice versa. We need to talk, we need to meet, we need to, to discover the wealth of each other. And we need to kneel before Our Lady of Guadalupe together. Our Lady of Guadalupe is not an, an apparition for Mexicans or for Latin Americans. It's like any other apparition. It's a message for all of us 
And I would say we need to rediscover our common ground following what Our Lady of Guadalupe teaches. So I would say we just need to, to be always friends and to try to keep faithful, not only in a mere intellectual way, but mainly through, through communion. We need to talk more, to discuss more, to share our experiences and to help each other if it's possible. Um, I invite Monsignor Gomez. Why don't we think in new projects, maybe unthinkable a few months ago, but now we are facing new common challenges. For instance, in the field of populism, I told him, in the field of migration, in the field of young generations that are needed of hearing the gospel, why don't we create common projects among the Latin American and the church in Canada and the States? So I invite him very, well, let's say, passionately to rethink. And I told him it's better to run the risk to create new projects of communion than to keep in our comfort zone. I know that it's less problematic for everyone to be in different fish tanks. It's like we, we, are, we are fishes, but in different fish tanks. The fish tank of the United States and the fish tank of Latin America. We, we say hello through the glass of the fish tank. <laughs> we smile. The, the bishops invite us some wonderful whiskeys I have never tasted before. But we need to, to move forward. Come on. It's better to commit mistakes, but moving us in the direction of a closer communion than to stay in the comfort zone without making noise. So I would recommend the same with you. We are a small institute of scientific research. Why don't we become friends and, and help each other? And I would say we have also good friends in Europe, like Austin and many others, who have the same concerns you have. And we can work together in a kind of new brotherhood of persons who try to live faithfully and humbly the experience of faith, trying to make an, an apostolate in favor of communion. I think that's interesting because we just had our first contributor from Australia. Wow. And, and we also noticed that some of our web traffic was coming from this site that we didn't recognize. We clicked on it and it was a Vietnamese website that had translated five or six of our articles. Now, Sort of like your story with uh, Archbishop Bergoglio, they didn't... <laughs> Without any rights, but... <laughs> but we provide our content for free, and if it can be provided, we've had uh, people translate into Portuguese, we've had people translate into French, Spanish, not so much Spanish, though. So if you know anyone who's interested in any of our material, yes, uh, feel free, let us know. But it's, it's this global community, and I think something that Pope Francis very much recognizes, and I think it's because... He grew up in an area as diverse as the Buenos Aires region of <laughs> Argentina. All kinds of levels of rich, poor, secular, religious. This ethnicity, that ethnicity, this level of education, that level of education. And one thing that I notice, especially in these online battles, are these, are these assumptions that there's only one proper form. And it's the one that I'm familiar with or the one that I'm advocating for. Querida Amazonia, we had um, a young African-American 
recent convert to the Catholic Church, Nate Tinner Williams, who wrote Guerrita African Americans, <laughs> because he saw the same elements apply to the African American church in the US. Wow. wow. They have, they have, something. it's a very culturally centered and distinct expression of the Catholic faith that's both wholly Catholic, but enculturates their values. So when somebody from, some Catholic from some middle-class parish in New Jersey witnesses the typical African-American style of worship, they might think, this is liturgical abuse. This, is, this document says that the sign of peace must only be given for, you know, you can't leave your pew. Or, but to the African-American community, this is a natural, authentic, expression of their Catholicity. And when I visited African-American parishes, it's very important to them to show welcome. So during the sign of peace, the choir comes down and yes. obviously I stand out like a sore thumb and people come up to me and say, God bless you. And we're so happy to have you here. And then at the very end, it's very traditional for African-American parishes to say, are there any visitors here? Wow. <laughs> And they pass the microphone around, <laughs> and, and so. Um, but but the funny thing is, it's I think I think when I held the microphone, I started uh, uh, stuttering and 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 didn't know what to say because I I wasn't expecting it. But the smiles and the encouragement and and the the look of welcome that was given to me, and then on the way out of the church, the welcomes that I received, the the love, I. And I think Pope Francis also talked about, has talked about needing a more extroverted, which is tough for introverts, perception of the church or, or a, a church that's more welcoming of, of extroverts. And as somebody who's been known and has had it pointed out to him several times, I, I'm the type of person that will occasionally blurt out what's on the tip of my tongue without maybe discerning my audience or how it necessarily is going to be received. So when I, when Pope Francis arrived and he started talking about bat-like Christians or uh, pickle-faced, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I thought, well, you know, those are, those are pretty good expressions, but other people didn't find that as, as reverent uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as yeah. they wanted it to be. I would say in Latin America, it's ordinary that in some moments our pastors express in ordinary terms, but I know that in the States and in Europe sounds awful. When I remember when the Pope said something like, oh, some big families reproduce themselves as rabbits. In that occasion, I was in Croatia, and I remember some professors of the Catholic University who were, I mean, were very angry. How he dares to talk like this? comparing our big families with rabbits. <laughs> we are the rabbits. For us, it's very funny, I would say. And, and it's I, I thought it was too. And they removed the context because that paragraph, yeah. you take that one sentence, that paragraph was defending humane vitae. Yes, precisely. And, and he said, not using contraception doesn't mean you have to, and he said, pardon my expression, be like rabbits. <laughs> so he's, he was actually, he was saying, you're not like a rabbit, but somehow yeah. this, yeah. this is just, they will take anything he says <laughs> and weaponize it.
Yes, and uh, yeah, well, I would say we, we need to, to discover this Latin American spirit as well as we discover the Polish spirit. I mean, Polish people are not so easy. They are very, very square-minded in some occasions, so <laughs> we, we need some help. Now we are in a new moment where we need to explain to everyone who is Bergoglio and what is happening in our church. And at the end, I would say all the time, we need to stress that the Holy Spirit is behind our misery and he's working all the time well, in order to give hope and to, to avoid any kind of schism in our church or in our heart. I don't know if you have time to talk about that last word you just said. Schism? Um, yeah. I mean, I do you think... This morning, uh, Luigi Negri's letter to Vigano, and Luigi Negri was the former bishop of Ferrara, and he endorsed all Vigano's latest writings. In this way, Negri is following a schismatic position. Even, even Sandro Magister, who is not a friend of Pope Francis, uh, rejected strongly Vigano's position because he's against Vatican II. And he is saying that the Vatican is the source of all the problems of the Catholic Church in the last decades. So I would say schism is always a temptation when we consider ourselves pure, the, the, the owners of truth. And I would say we need to rec recover St. Augustine's and also Ratzinger's idea that we are not the owners of truth. Truth is the one who owns us. <laughs> we are not the owners. On the contrary, we are owned by the truth, by the truth incarnated in who is Jesus Christ. See, I recognized some of these things very early on because of my background. I noticed some of the signs and I recognized that a lot of this was the same. The roots were the same rhetoric and the same school of logic that was employed by Archbishop Lefebvre back in the 60s and 70s. I, I wrote a piece, Marcel Lefebvre the father of traditionalist dissent, because I saw the same arguments at work. And I thought it reached a peak in 2017, when on the 100th anniversary, or it was prior to the 100th anniversary of Fatima, but on, at the Rome Life Forum, I believe in June, yeah. Cardinal Burke called for the re-consecration, or in his mind, the authentic consecration of Russia to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. And when I heard this, I thought, he's gone too far. There's no way that he's either going to have to walk this back or give a, a clarification, because the John Paul II Catholics, for example, those at the John Paul II Institute, those at EWTN, I thought to myself, they will recognize this as a bridge too far. Yes. But the problem is, he was given a pass, and now he's hinted about the third secret not being authentic. He's made this call many, many times. He uses careful language. He'll say, I do not doubt the sincere intention of John Paul II. 
<laughs> but in fulfilling our lady's request but i would like to reaffirm our lady's call and ask that he follow it in the way that she said he's you know he's a lawyer so he uh he knows how to word it in a way that is non-threatening to certain crowds but that was a moment for me where when that was given a free pass and when the media just the right-wing Catholic media, LifeSite News, reported this as if it was a good thing. I thought, where is this going to go? And then a year later, we had Vigano, and now, <laughs> uh, now we have even more Vigano. Yes, uh, I, I would say uh, the, the fraternity of St. Pius X immediately reacted, opening his, their arms to Vigano saying that Vigano, in, in, the, in the official webpage of the fraternity, they say Vigano is a new Lefebvre for our century. So I think if, these, if they follow this path, they are going to become new members of the fraternity of St. Pius X. <laughs> and the fraternity is going to grow in terms of recognition, maybe, in some atmospheres, because the work has a lot of followers. But at the same time, we'll need prayer and, and, and some tears because all the experiments of creating a church aside from the Holy Father in the history of the church, all the experiments have failed because at the bottom there is a, an ecclesiological lack where the successor of Peter is not necessary for being Catholic. I would say this is an enormous ecclesiological and dogmatic mistake. And the history of the church is super clear. I mean, all, all the heresies, all the heresies, all the, let's say, not only the Pelagians and the Gnostics, but the Cathars, the Albigenses, there are so many heresies in the history of the church. All the heresies have a common point, even though there are different kinds of heresies. And the common point is to try to create the church away from the successor of Peter. The successor of Peter has been, in many occasions, a saint. In some others, a sinner. But in all the times, has been the successor of Peter with the promise of Jesus Christ in his back. So, I would say uh, it's very dangerous to, to follow this path. The path of, of, of Vigano is going to end maybe in, in the fraternity of St. Pius X or maybe in a sedevacantist position because at least in my opinion, there are some elements that are pointing towards to, to, to affirm that the Pope is not a true Pope. So, oh, certainly. And so, there have been statements made, and, and this yeah. was another thing that alarmed me about Cardinal Burke, was when he started talking about the set of Acantist theory that a Pope, by being a manifest heretic, could renounce the papacy. Now, there's a huge question about primacy and indefectibility, about whether that's even possible. My personal position, based on the First Vatican Council through John Paul II's papacy, is that the position of the church is that that can't happen. Yes, um, that, I, I agree. I, I agree. There is a, a very radical traditionalist in Mexico. Who, he, he, I mean, he, he's dead, but he was very famous some years ago, called Salvador Abascal. Salvador Abascal was the leader of the post-Cristero movement. He was the leader of the so-called 
synarchist, a kind of Catholic social movement, very strong in the 30s and 40s and 50s in Mexico. And when Vatican II arrived, he was tempted by the Sede Vacantist. He, he met the very first Sede Vacantist movement in the world, which was not European or American or French. It was a Mexican group called the Tecos. The Tecos is a secret, now is a secret organization of the far right in Mexico, and they are Sede Vacantist. And Salvador Abascal knew them. He was tempted, but at the end, even though he was very, very, very traditionalist, he was not prepared for understanding Vatican II. He said, Ubi Petrus, Ibi Ecclesia, and wrote an enormous book, which uh, the title in Spanish is El Papa no puede, nunca ha sido intra hereje. The Pope has not been an heretic and he will never be an heretic. This is the title of the book. It's an enormous book. It's like 1,000 pages. With They've been translated into no, English? No, never, never, never. Another one that needs to be. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I put always this example because Salvador Abascal is uh, one of the most prominent figures in the ultra-conservative groups in Mexico and in Latin America. But he kept himself faithful to Paul VI, even though he, he recognized that he was not ready to understand every single detail of Vatican II because he was educated, let's say, in the tradition of Joseph Lemaitre, or the so-called contra-revolutionary reaction, Catholic reaction against the Jews and the Masons, and so on. So he was very, very radical in, in his time. But he was faithful. I would say this, this moment of faith, of recognizing in Paul VI the true successor of Peter was very important. And uh, I would say maybe, maybe this person is in heaven, not because he was perfectly coherent, not because he was totally pure in his doctrine. No, he was very ideological. But in the decisive moment, he said, Vatican II is a true council and we cannot reject the Pope. And the battle against the Sede Vacantist in Mexico began. The Sede Vacantist killed persons in Mexico who remained faithful to Paul VI and killed them horribly. So I, I would say all these experiences always give us help, give us hope. <laughs> because the decisive moment is a moment of faith when we have to trust in Jesus more than in our ideas. Here's a question. So during the 1960s and 1970s, when Marcel Lefebvre started his resistance, and the reports are that he was the author of the Ottaviani intervention, the document uh, on the eve of the Novus Ordo being uh, promulgated, this document that was signed by Ottaviani and I think uh, another cardinal and a few other people in the church that was basically decrying the new revision to the, to the Roman Missal. Ottaviani also affirmed Vatican II and the sacredness of the revision of the Mass and stood by the Pope, whereas Archbishop Lefebvre did not. And having read some of the history, I know that in 1974 or 1975, Pope St. Paul VI suspended 
the faculties to say mass, to exercise public ministry from Archbishop Lefebvre. And they met in 1976. They had a fairly contentious meeting. There were letters that were exchanged. I believe a transcript from that meeting was released within the last two or three years. And then when Lefebvre ultimately decided to ordain bishops and he went ahead with it, he and those bishops were excommunicated formally. A decree of excommunication was written. Pope Francis hasn't done that to those who have openly defied his, uh, his, his authority. Now, I don't know of any illicit ordinations of bishops, but certainly the types of things that led to the suspension of Lefebvre's faculties, I think we've far surpassed that and on a much greater scale. The Society of St. Pius X is relatively small, and I don't know if the reason for that is because that formal action was taken. Now, in the case of Archbishop Lefebvre himself, he never reconciled with the church before he died. So we pray for his soul because he never retreated from his position of disobedience. Do you think that that experience that happened in the 1970s and 1980s regarding the society has informed Pope Francis's response to what I see is essentially the same schism but on a much wider scale because of the internet. Yeah, there are some simi many similarities between these two different scenarios, but there is a, a difference. Maybe it's a sketchy way to present it, but uh, I'm going to say that um, the original Lefebvreists were very well prepared in the field of theology and philosophy. They liked to study Thomas Aquinas. Uh, maybe in a little bit formalistic way, maybe with some uh, putting first Garrigou Lagrange before than Thomas Aquinas. I, I don't know, but, but they, they loved studying. The problem with the new traditionalist movement is that they are very postmodern. They are very irrationalistic. There are many persons who defend the mass in Latin that do not speak a word of Latin. And those who, like me, who defend the mass in vernacular language, at least some of us, we, we studied Latin. <laughs> this is very funny. And now, let's say, I, I, I don't know about the education of Viganò. He studied in the Pontifical Ecclesiastic Academy. And for sure, he has some good preparation. But I, I'm, I'm talking about the main uh, young people following, let's say, pseudo-traditionalist positions are more based in feelings and sensations, are more based in some ceremonies and some solemnity than in the Aquinas, the true teachings of the church, and so on. So in certain way, I, I think if, if somehow Viganò and his friends make a schism, the traditionalist movement is going to receive a postmodern seed. They are going to be inoculated by irrationality. They are going to be inoculated by... Conspiracy theories, for instance, in the 60s, were more or less based in the so-called Jew Jewish Masonic conspiracy. Some 
some books were very, very complex. For instance, trying to find a theological justification for the role of Jews against Catholic Church. I read some of these books who were very, very complex in the theological field. Now, the most advanced conspiracy theory Vigano has in his mind is QAnon. Come on. <laughs> this is like, a, like the de decadent version of even in the field of conspiracy theories. It's closer to the X-Files than classical anti-Semitism. I, I, I would say that the change of epoch is not out of these controversies. I mean, also the postmodern world is arriving in the so-called traditionalist movement. And in some moments appears with some strength, appears big, but at the same time has all the weaknesses of some members of the new generations who have been educated by Xbox and, and Netflix. And so I would say, I, I am making a very sketchy presentation of this. Maybe it's even unfair. But I, I would say the new traditionalist movement remembers me more the so-called erudites libertins, the libertines in times of the cut, who were defending more than tradition, irrationalism. For instance, the, the, the so-called libertines, who were the enemies of the cult, used to say that truth cannot be achieved by reason. So we need to trust in tradition, because this is the only source of truth. So they accepted, the libertines accepted a premise, a philosophical premise, that reason has not a metaphysical reach. And so they have to trust in tradition, in what is conservative, in what is, in order to, to have a certain approach to truth. The Archbishop of Paris talked with René Descartes, who was a very young student, and convinced him that his vocation was to defend the church with the strength of reason. So he invited him to be very, very faithful to Our Lady and, and to, to create a new system to defend the church before the Protestants, who were also irrational for, from his point of view, and from libertines. Protestants were talking about solas fide, only, that only faith can save, and the link between reason and faith was broken with, with them, and libertines were more or less in the same position, distrusting reason. I think if we study this moment, the so-called enemies of the cult, we can discover some clues for understanding what is happening in the new traditionalist movement. Because I would say there is a, a seed of irrationality, postmodern, what we call weak thought, weak thought in the new traditionalist. I have, I have talked with, with these people from the States, from Germany, from France, from Argentina, from Brazil, from TFP, from, for instance, the, the present members of TFP are not like the founders. Plinio Correa de Oliveira, the founder of TFP, I mean, he, he was very ideological, he was very wrong, but he wrote books after studying a little bit. The new members of TFP are not well-trained, are not well-trained. I don't know if you, if you watched the videos of the priests of, of the, of the so-called 
heralds of the gospel, this TFP branch. The exorcism or the... the, the about the exorcisms, yes. Yeah. And you, 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 I mean, it was an, a kind of a peculiar exorcism. But the, the, the crowd of nuns and priests around the person who was supposedly possessed were crowds irrational, totally irrational, clapping, shouting, uh, la- laughing. And, and so, in my opinion, something, there is a shift, there is, a, there is something new there that has to be explored and studied. The times of Malachi Martin, for instance, in the States, are in the past. I mean, Michael Boris is not Malachi Martin. Michael Boris is totally weak. I don't know if you know about Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration. Yeah, Um, I I read some... uh, I mean, essentially, it's, yeah, David Lafferty wrote a three-part analysis of where the origins of these conspiracy theories came from. And my opinion is basically it's a a dumbed down disorganized compilation of of every reactionary catholic conspiracy theory from 1880 until 2000 but these ideas really came to life in the 70s a lot of traditionalists embraced his ideas and i, I and i mean i think malachi martin was a master publicist <laughs> self promoter I mean, he just knew, he found this niche. I mean, he was the secretary to Cardinal Bea in Vatican II and underwent this personality change where he presented himself as this uh, priest with a secret mandate from Paul VI to be an exorcist. And towards the end, he he was even talking like a set of a cantist, promoting the Siri thesis where uh, Cardinal Siri was elected Pope, but then the communists forced him to turn it down. The only problem was the original Siri thesis was about the 1958 conclave, and he misspoke and once said it was 1963, and then another time said it was 1978. So Cardinal Siri may have been elected Pope three times, uh, <laughs> according to uh, some of these folks. What I am sensing and it may be because populism is on the rise, is this sense of belonging, this sense of appealing to human nature and human instincts. When they had that, uh, that ceremony in the Vatican Gardens, as soon as CNA put out an article saying it, rese- you know, it resembled a pagan ceremony, everybody jumped on it suddenly. Now, Pedro, being from Portugal, understands Spanish and Portuguese, could actually listen to the entire video, which was an hour and 15, hour, 20 minutes long. He said, there were 16 minutes of Catholic prayers, Catholic readings, uh, Catholic worship. Then this group comes out, they, they, have their, they, they go in their circle, they do their prostration, they, they leave, and then there's another hour of Catholic prayers, Catholic devotions, Catholic readings, totally Catholic. And he said, it makes no sense that there would be a Catholic ceremony that was interrupted in the middle with a pagan ritual. And he also overheard the lady say, when the image was presented, the statue was presented to Pope Francis, that she said, Our Lady of the Amazon. Now, there was clarification, what did the figure actually mean? 
only one of the organizers of the ceremony was ever interviewed about what it meant. And he said, you know, it means life, fertility. Some people see it as the Virgin Mary. And I think Pedro did heroic work. I think we also helped. Austin Ivory says he thinks that uh, where Peter is did a service to the church during that time. Because it seemed that in the synod, they weren't taking this seriously. That it's just fanatics. It's just, uh, you know, the, the Catholic left was just like, these are crazy people. Don't even listen to them. And on the right, however, there was this narrative that was building. Look at this. It's obviously pagan. Look, there are these figures. They're obviously worshiping these idols. And that's kind of where our niche is. We, we understand where these reactionary impulses are coming from, and we try to address them. And I think, I mean, Pedro was extremely intrigued and he wrote maybe 10 articles, probably 15,000 words total. Wow. wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, really just heroic work. But the funny thing is I would encounter people, people who were employed by the church, the uh, executive director of the International Committee on English in the Liturgy posted on his Facebook page that this was pagan worship. <laughs> There, yeah, and, and I would prominent... love to, to invite all these guys to visit <laughs> Querétaro. For 500 years, in the Temple of the Holy Cross, is the place where Querétaro was founded. We, in the day of the Holy Cross, we have thousands, thousands of Indian rites in the, in the atrium of the church as a sign of preparation for the encounter with Jesus Christ in the tabernacle and in the cross. So, I mean, if they see what I see all the years here in the Holy Cross Temple, and that it has happened for 500 years here, they, they would say that we are not even Catholics, that we have been for 500 years pagans, because the church receives all the gifts, all the symbols of the Indian cultures and they, as a gift. And then the cross appears as the main sign that rules <laughs> and, and, and everything is clear that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And I, I thank you very much for the opportunity for meeting you. <laughs> thank you very much, Rodrigo, for a very intriguing um, conversation. And uh, anytime uh, you want to talk, contribute, yeah, collaborate, we're here for you. So thank you. Thank you. Great to get to know you. It was a pleasure. God bless you. This concludes part three of our conversation with Rodrigo Guerra. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as we did and would like to support future episodes of Peter's Field Hospital, please consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. Your support is what makes our work possible. Until next time, God bless and take care. Music